Welcome to The Lowdown, a podcast of news and ideas from the Columbia Alumni Association. One of the most pressing and universal issues of our day is how to address climate change. Although most do agree that the environment has evolved tremendously over time, many are not aware of how rapidly the recent changes are occurring and what the consequences can mean for us in the years to come. That's where researchers like Hugh Ducklow come in. Ducklow is a Columbia professor in the Earth and Environmental Sciences Department and a researcher at the Lamont Doherty Earth Observatory. In many ways, Ducklow is the definition of an explorer. He has participated in over 30 major oceanographic expeditions in nearly all the world's oceans. And as a researcher at Lamont, he leads expeditions in Antarctica nearly every year to study and collect research on climate change in the fastest warming place in the world. Recently, he gave a special lecture at New York City's Explorers Club as part of a series of spring science programs and events hosted by the CAA. Since its founding in 1904, the Explorers Club has served as a meeting place for explorers and scientists worldwide. Its wood-paneled halls have hosted many members who are responsible for some very famous firsts. First in the North Pole, first to the South Pole, first to Summit Mount Everest, and first to the surface of the moon. So what better place to hear from a man who regularly walks with penguins and was once trapped on a boat in the Arctic ice for a month? In the lecture you're about to hear, Ducklow tells us about his research and recounts one of his recent trips to Antarctica. Through it all, he conveys the important role that keeping knowledgeable and taking meaningful action will play in preserving the health of the ecosystem that we depend on. So, um... We still depend on the biosphere to maintain our existence on planet Earth. Um, We're not self-sufficient. We may become self-sufficient someday and live in bubbles or under domes or something. But uh, at this time, we still need a healthy, functioning biosphere uh, to exist. Uh, The biosphere is the thin film of life that surrounds the planet. It extends uh, maybe a thousand meters down into the crust of the Earth, and it extends... uh, some miles up into the atmosphere. Uh, It's very fragile. And it's a mosaic of interlocking ecosystems. Uh, Ecosystems like uh, the great forests of the earth, um, deserts, grasslands, coral reefs, uh, rivers, lakes, the open sea, the deep ocean. Uh, They're all adapted to exist with each other. They've been existing, they've been evolving for uh, billions of years. Most of that time it was just microbes, but uh, Much more recently, we came along, and uh, in spite of us, the biosphere is struggling along. Um, No ecosystem is unaffected by human activity. doesn't matter where you go, how remote you are. Uh, The bottom of the deepest parts of the ocean, Antarctica, um, the centers of the great deserts, uh, they're all affected by us, um, and they've all been responding to climate change and changing and evolving and adapting themselves for millions of years. Nothing new about climate change or ecosystem change. That's the first thing that climate deniers will tell you. Well, it's all been changing. So we know that. Don't worry about it. Um, The problem is now, critically, climate is warming faster than it has at any point in the past 10 million years. Probably longer, but about 10 million years back is where we can make that statement with some precision. 
Um, and it's warming faster than organisms and ecosystems can keep up. So it's also changing faster than we can understand what's going on. By the time we begin to get a handle on the way certain ecosystems are operating and how they're changing in response to climate change, they've already changed and they're into some new state. So uh, it's really a challenge. Um, it's a challenge that takes a lot of resources, a lot of dedication, a lot of imagination, uh, creativity, and exploration to understand. But um, I think our great grand challenge as a human civilization is adapting our societies to climate change and restoring healthy ecosystems uh, and healthy ecosystem functions like maintaining clean air and water, soil fertility, um, to maintain the integrity of the biosphere. And that's something all of us are engaged in one way or another. So for our part, we're working on the Antarctic Peninsula. It's the skinny part of Antarctica that sticks up towards South America. And uh, by coincidence, uh, the United States has one of its three research bases there, Palmer Station. And coincidentally with that, it's also one of the most rapidly warming places on the planet. The mean average winter temperature of the Palmer Station region has warmed up by 11 degrees Fahrenheit since 1950. Imagine if the average temperature of um, New York City in the winter was 11 degrees warmer than it was whenever you remember it from 50 years ago. Um, that's a huge change. Um, in the Antarctic Peninsula, 80% of the glaciers are retreating and sea ice that covers the ocean in winter has uh, declined in the amount of time that it covers the ocean by 90 days per year since 1978. So the physical climate and the actual physical habitat of this part of uh, Antarctica is just uh, literally melting away uh, before our eyes. And the ecosystem is responding to that. Um, the marine ecosystems in Antarctica, that's the ecosystems that have the uh, charismatic uh, organisms like seals, whales, and penguins that you all know about, um, is extremely dependent on sea ice. Uh, the waxing and waning of the sea ice uh, the seasonality, the date when it advances in the fall and the date when it retreats in the spring, all the organisms in that ecosystem are adapted to that rhythm. And of course, it's now changing really rapidly. So they're responding to that. And one of our jobs is to try and understand why and how the sea ice itself is declining and disappearing, and especially how biological populations and ecosystems are responding to that. So um, if you look at the peninsula, it's basically a long skinny peninsula that stretches up to the north away from the South Pole. And that area is experiencing something we call climate migration. So climate warming started up in the north of the peninsula about 50 years ago, we think. And it's slowly, or maybe not so slowly, moving progressively down the peninsula. So the, the areas of warming are migrating to the south and then ecosystems are responding uh, and the farther south you go uh, you're moving back uh, into areas that have not been exposed to warming quite so long so another way to understand that is to imagine uh, that you're starting out and uh, tomorrow morning uh, you're going to drive from washington to boston it's a nice day's drive not that far and so imagine that 
Washington has been warming for 50 years or 100 years, and none of the ecosystems there are the way they used to be. And that many of the characteristic species in the Washington D ecosystem, D DC ecosystem are gone. And by the time you get to New York, after you've been driving four or five hours, you notice that it's a little cooler. The ecosystems don't look very different. And you keep driving, and by the time you get up to Boston, uh, you're back in the original conditions that that part of the world was in um, and continues to be in. So it's these very pronounced gradients. Climate change is happening rapidly. We think it's migrating down the peninsula about um, 10 miles per year. And so it's happening really rapidly. And, and we're trying to understand that. We're also using it as a tool. By starting in the north, we can see all the changes that have happened. Um, but we don't know where they came from. So by going farther down south, we can actually go back in time to the primeval conditions of Antarctica before climate change. So that's real exploration. Uh, we've extended our study area much farther to the south than we used to go because you have to do that just to find ice. Um, and so exploration in space and also by doing this movement to the south where we're swapping space for time, we're doing exploration in time as well. Our project has been going since 1990 um, with dedicated people going down there year after year and making very systematic measurements and observations. So we really know precisely about some of these changes I've been telling you about. Um, in the north, uh, Adelie penguin populations, that's the little penguin that stands about knee high. Um, they've declined by 80% in our region. There used to be about 15,000 breeding pairs right near Palmer Station. Now there's fewer than 3,000. Uh, there are other penguins from farther north, subpolar species, not adapted to sea ice that are beginning to come in and take over the neighborhood. Um, rates of photosynthesis that everything depends on have declined by as much as 50% in that region in direct response to the loss of the sea ice. And krill, uh, the zooplankton that are the primary food of penguins, seals and whales are also declining, uh, partly because of climate change, but also because they've become uh, a lucrative and very active fishery. Uh, so if you want to get your omega-7 fatty acids, do it from something besides krill. Um, okay, so our ultimate aim is to understand not just how that system is changing, but we want to understand the mechanisms of change. It's really hard to do. We can go down and watch, and we can see what's happening, but we have to perform experiments down there um, in the cold and in these regions so remote and far away from our supply chains, um, that it's a, it's a very demanding effort and it takes a big enterprise. Uh, there are private contractors who help us with all the support. And so there's a real uh, teamwork, um, not just in, in uh, Palmer Station where we work, but at uh, the other bases at McMurdo and the South Pole as well. Um, so I'm gonna talk about a little adventure we had down there and then if there's time, I'll uh, be glad to take questions. Um, one of the first cruises I was on uh, to the peninsula region was in September of 2001. And the objective of this cruise was um, to actually take the boat deep into the ice. Uh, September, uh, the ice hasn't really started to retreat yet. So the whole ocean is covered by ice. Uh, you look at the ocean and it just looks white. Um, and the ice is about a meter thick. Uh, icebreakers can go through that without much trouble at all at five to 10 knots. Uh, so we wanted to get deep into the ice and then actually um, stop the vessel in the ice 
and scientists would get off the boat and establish camps on the ice, uh, drill holes through the ice for divers to go underneath and make a lot of physical, chemical, biological measurements on the ice. And so that went along uh, pretty well for about 10 days. And then uh, there were some very anomalous, uh, seasonally unusual winds blowing from the northwest. And they had the effect of, of jamming all the ice up against the continent. And we were right in the middle of that. So the ice uh, suddenly, overnight really, was under fantastic pressure. And when that happens, uh, the sea ice, it breaks up and these big ice flows kind of pile up on top of each other. And they also converge and come together and they, they uh, pile up on the underside of the ice down into the ocean. So the divers showed us um, photographs of ice going down as much as 10 meters under the ocean and three, four, five meter ridges up on top, pressure ridges. So the boat can't go through 5, 10, 15 meters of ice. There are some nuclear icebreakers that can do that. We, we didn't have one of those. So um, in the end, uh, as a result of this uh, pressurization of the ice, um, we ended up uh, what the National Science Foundation calls beset in the ice. Um, we said we were stuck. And uh, officially we were beset for 16 days, but really we were staying in uh, that immediate region for almost a month. Um, we spent two days trying to break out and used up something like 25,000 gallons of fuel trying to bust out of there. And uh, the National Science Foundation looked at the daily fuel readings and said, nope, you're just going to sit still now and you can wait to get out until the ice melts. Uh, that was in early to mid-October and the, the climatological average time the ice melts in that particular region is uh, around Thanksgiving. So we were looking at being there in the ice um, without very much to do for some uh, uncertain uh, period of time, which is really interesting psychologically. Um, there were a few people in complete denial who said, but I have to get back, I have to teach, I, I have an interview for my next job. Um, my kids don't, they need me. Um, yeah, well, so, but most people, and eventually everybody was fantastic, and um, we had a lot of group dynamics. People were inventing activities to keep everybody occupied, uh, keep morale up. Do any of you know the murder game where you have a deck of cards where somebody has the queen of spades and they're the murderer and nobody else knows that? So that one of the things we did. Um, so it, was, it ended up being just an amazing experience, but it was serious. Um, we had plenty of fuel, food, fuel for electricity, drinking water, hot water, uh, conserving fuel to uh, bust out, uh, which we eventually did. One of the things that's nice about the scientific support down there is that um, we have um, satellite uh, remote imagery, um, primarily from radar, which can go through the clouds, uh, showing the ice state every day. And uh, one of the officers on the bridge saw an ice image uh, somewhere toward the end of October, and, uh, and there was a big crack in the ice about 10 miles away. And they said, well, if we can just give it one big push and maybe get to that crack, we can sail right out. And the next day we were out of the ice and on our way home. But that isn't really the end of the story. In fact, uh, the beginning of the story is a little bit different. Um, the chief scientist, the expedition leader for our cruise, um, right before we left, so say in mid-August, um, he suddenly got in touch with the National Science Foundation and with all of us and said uh, he had a conflict that he absolutely couldn't break and he had to withdraw from the cruise. And um, two days after on the boat, after we got into Antarctica, he had a brain tumor. 
uh, that he probably already had. And so if he'd gone on the trip, he would have died. He's still with us. Uh, he's the physical oceanographer in our program. Also, you heard me say September 2001. The day we arrived in the ice was 9-11. And we heard about that by um, very much less efficient, um, more laborious communications than we have now 15 years later. And like everyone here, I guess, uh, it was really hard to believe. And then we began to understand what was happening. So that, that really um, put a flavor on the cruise. Um, and then a few, about a week after that, we stopped and we called it the British base. And the day after we left the British base, their main laboratory burned down. Um, when, when buildings burn down in Antarctica, there's really not much you can do because there aren't fire hoses with liquid water. And the winds are so high, they really whip things down. So that burned down. Now they got a really nice new laboratory out of it. And then a little bit after that, um, we got socked in and we spent the rest of that time there. So um, exploration uh, is tightly linked with investigation and occasionally it's linked with high adventure, uh, hopefully without harm, without loss. Uh, oh, I forgot to tell you, the other thing about maintaining morale on the vessels is that none of the U.S. research vessels in the research fleet have any alcohol. So that also makes it kind of take some time. Um, Anyway, um, I want to make two more points, and then I'll turn it open for questions. Um, something new we have at Columbia and in Lamont Doherty um, is the Center for Climate and Life. It's only been formed this year, and uh, what Climate and Life wants to do, it's part of the Earth Institute, part of uh, Lamont Doherty. Uh, we're trying to mobilize scientists across all scientific disciplines, uh, the natural sciences, the social sciences, and we want to accelerate our understanding of how uh, climate impacts the security of those four elements that we need to survive on the planet, food, water, shelter, and sustainable available energy. So that's what uh, we're engaged in, and I encourage you to Google Climate and Life Columbia. Um, finally, I just want to say that uh, we're all exploring uh, the ecological and geophysical consequences of this gigantic planetary warming experiment uh, that we're doing. Uh, we chose to do it, uh, so we're all part of that experiment and we're all part of trying to understand what it's about and how we can solve it, uh, whether we want to or not. But uh, scientists at Lamont and Columbia were leaders of that expedition, and uh, as Columbia alumni, you're a perfect place to also join that expedition. And so thanks a lot for your attention. To find out about more events and programs like this, visit alumni.columbia.edu slash events. And to learn more about research at Lamont, visit ldeo.columbia.edu. This podcast was produced by the Columbia Alumni Association. Columbia University is a mecca of great ideas in one of the world's greatest cities. And with more than 320,000 Columbia alumni who are leaders in every field imaginable and spread across the world, the Columbia Alumni Association brings you the latest musings, updates, and insights from Columbia University. To find more news and ideas from Columbia, check out thelowdown.alumni.columbia.edu.